So this week I had kind of a traumatic experience because I was attacked by a deer. Now, let me explain. So as, a, as an early Christmas gift, Jonathan and Wisdom, we uh, gave us this lovely little guy. And you can't tell from the photo, but it's about 16 inches tall. It's pretty heavy, and the antlers are very, very sharp. And, and I'm, I'm confident. I know that the Wees love us. I know that there was no harm intended. But the fact remains that this deer attacked me and inflicted some serious bodily harm on me uh, earlier this week. And it happened on Monday night. We were Christmasing the house, and so we had the Christmas music blaring. We had just eaten some, um, uh, some tasty enchiladas, and the fire was blazing, and the lights were up, and the decor was flying around, and, and, and the Christmas tree got up. And, and I went over to the Christmas tree to fill up the little stand underneath with water, you know, because you got to keep the tree refreshed. And, and, and as, I was, as I was bending down on hands and knees, getting underneath the tree, that's when it happened. Out of nowhere, this deer came plunging down on top of me, and it hit my thumb. Now, I know for some of you, you think, oh, it just hit your thumb, but have you ever slammed your fingers in a door? It can be your thumb. It's a very, very painful experience. I, you guys are feeling me right now. You're entering into this moment with me. It was really difficult. And, um, but it just, it was so, this, this thing came down and it, and it slammed into my, now, and I was like, what is this doing here? And apparently, my nephew Duke, who's been staying with us for a, a bit, uh, who's 18 years old, uh, had... I'm sure not intending any harm to me, had planted the, the, the deer up at the top of our seven-foot Christmas tree. And for whatever reason, he put it up there, and, and the velocity with the seven feet, the weight of this thing and all of it, it put me in such tremendous pain. That, just get the picture. Um, the fire is blazing, and it, you know, the Christmas lights are up, uh, the house is decorated, uh, joy to the world is blaring over the radio. And meanwhile, I am curled up at a ball, almost crying, feeling like I'm gonna pass out from the pain. And as I was laying there, I thought, this is a parable. Now, that, that story is ridiculous. It's true, but it's ridiculous. But I think the experience that many, many people have at this time of year is not ridiculous. I think many, many, many people go into this season feeling this mixture of both, both joy as well as pain. And we can find ourselves with these two things coexisting. And many of you, you love Christmas, and I love Christmas, and you love preparing for Christmas. You like Christmas lights, you like, uh, you like the music, you like, you like the whole thing. And yet there's something about this time that evokes, uh, for, for many of us, a feeling of pain and loss and sadness. And maybe it's because at this time when we're supposed to be so happy and the house is supposed to be full and rich, Maybe at this time of year, it's never just felt so empty and the ache has never felt so pronounced than it does in the season when you're just not supposed to be feeling that way, and yet you are. Last year, during the Advent season, 
Every week as we lit our Advent candle, we read this poem by the the brilliant uh, preacher and theologian and civil rights leader, Howard Thurman, and it went like this. I will light candles this Christmas, candles of joy despite all the sadness, candles of hope where despair keeps watch, candles of courage for fears ever present, candles for peace for tempest-tossed days, candles of grace to ease heavy burdens, candles of love to inspire all my living, candles that will burn all year long. Now, I think maybe some might write something like that off, those kind of words off as sentimental and cliche, but these words were anything but sentimental and cliche when written by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman, uh, the, the grandson of enslaved Africans, growing up in the Deep South, uh, surrounded all the time by the realities of lynchings in Jim Crow era, and, and himself lost a wife after just four years of marriage. She, she died of tuberculosis. He knew deep sadness and pain. He knew tempest-tossed days. He knew heavy burdens. He knew sadness and fears. And yet, he said, I light a candle because there's something that was born on Christmas Day. There was a reality that was birthed into our, re- into our reality. The light of God's incarnate love in Jesus was born on Christmas, this light coexisting among the sadness and fears. And for, for our Advent season this year, we are beginning a new series called Hope Came Quiet. And what I want to do is I want to just explore some of the stories surrounding the birth of Jesus, where the hope and the light of Christmas came quietly into contact into transformation, into transforming contact with very real realities, very real stories of pain and loss surrounding the birth of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to join with me as we enter into these narratives over the next few weeks and see how maybe even in the midst of our storm-tossed days and our sadness and our fears we might find all of that reality transformed with the light and the hope of Christmas. And I want to begin uh, with maybe some of the lesser-known characters of Christmas. Uh, These are arguably uh, some of the characters that maybe some of you have never even heard of. They're not on our Christmas cards. They don't feature in our pageants or uh, in our manger scenes. Uh, these two characters named Zachariah and Elizabeth, despite the fact that they're almost absent in all of our Christmas stuff, they open the story of Christmas in the gospel of Luke. And it's fascinating. Luke uh, opens up his gospel, uh, and, and he, he tells us more about the birth of Jesus than any other gospel writer. And he opens up the story of the birth of Jesus, interestingly, not with the story of Jesus or with wise men or shepherds or with Mary and Joseph. Instead, he opens up the story of Jesus with the story of, of an older couple who was experiencing kind of a long night of pain, and their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
And let's see where their story begins. Notice what it says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah. So Zachariah is a priest. Well, you're like, well, is there anything else we can know about him? Like what kind of, what division was he a part of? Well, he was a part of the division of Abiha. Well, did he have a wife? Was he married? Yeah, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. What a description to be written about your life. You know, righteous, blameless in all of the commandments and the statutes of God. I mean, this, this couple, they are a force to be reckoned with. They are legendary. I mean, they, they are walking in all of the commandments of the Lord. And, and he's a priest. Uh, we find out that Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron. So she has, she has, she has some serious you know, um, lineage going on. And yet, although they were faithfully walking with God, although they were obedient to the commandments of God, although they carried this, this, this lineage, you have this godly couple, and yet, notice what it says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. This must have been so confusing for them. Because here they were, uh, they were righteous. They were doing everything they should have been doing. And yet, there was no child. Now, in, in our own world, it can be a deep ache and pain, and some of you have known this, of trying to have a baby and you can't, you just long for it and you, you find yourself powerless to deliver the one thing you want most. And, and this was an extreme tragedy in the ancient world. You know, your children were everything for you in the ancient world. They, they were your social security, your Medicaid, your Medicare. You know, there, there was no Caesar care in the first century. Your, your kids were your social safety nets. And, and they were how your name carried on. And they were what filled your house with joy. And if you couldn't have children and you were a woman, who were you even in this world? Who were you in that culture? And so here is this couple and they're experiencing this deep and painful tension that, so, you know, it, it, it's one thing. If you feel like something's going wrong in your life and you can trace back to the stupid decision you made that led to it. But what's really difficult is when you have all of this happening in you and you're, you're experiencing this pain and, and you can't have the one thing you most want and it just seems like you're doing everything right. And you're looking at other people and they're not doing everything right. And you're like, why did they have a child? But I don't, why do they have a spouse? Why aren't they lonely? You know, why, why are their parents seem to be so, why do they have such a healthy, happy home? And they're ingrateful and they're jerks, you know? And... Um, and, and it's difficult. It must have been so confusing. Well, the story goes on and it says, now, while he, speaking of Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the text tells us that Zechariah was chosen to burn incense. You know, if you were... Uh, th there was a number of priests, about 18,000 priests in the world of Jesus, and they took uh, uh, turns. Uh, so um, 
they were divided up into 24 kind of regimens, and each regimen, each division of priests would serve uh, two weeks out of the year at the temple in Jerusalem. Kind of like if you're an army reservist and you're called out to serve for a season, then you go home. The priests would go and they'd serve for a season, they'd go home. And while they were in Jerusalem, they would have various and sundry jobs that would be done. There would be sacrifices to be offered. Uh, there were people to be prayed for. Uh, there were teachings to be given. And uh, if, if there were lepers that were cleansed, they would come and they would get a clean bill of health from the priests. And the priests had lots of, of jobs around the temple. But arguably, the most coveted responsibility you could get if you were a priest would be to go into the temple and to offer incense twice a day, at the morning sacrifice and at the evening sacrifice, the priest would go into the holy place. So uh, here's a picture of the temple in Jerusalem. It was, um, this is a model of the temple in Jerusalem. This doesn't exist in Jerusalem today, in case you were wondering. Um, but it was, uh, it was an example of architectural genius and splendor. It was the axis mundi, the very meeting place of heaven and earth. It was where every Jew longed to go for all of their holidays. And if you were a priest, the thing you wanted to do more than anything would be to go inside the holy place. And inside the holy place, there was the candelabra and there was the table of showbread. And then right in the center, there was the altar of incense and they would burn this incense twice a day. And the incense was symbolic. As the smoke rose up, it, it was symbolizing something. You're like, well, what, what, like, what is incense all about? You know, my father-in-law burns incense in his house and it gives it good vibes. You know, when you walk into somebody's house and they're burning incense, it's clear. You know, those people, they've got some good energy. They're probably doing some earthing. They go out with bare feet and they take the energy from the earth. And, um, you know, it's hippie and uh, it's good. And uh, so, so we know why people in our day burn incense, but why did the priests go into the temple to burn incense? You know, were they just being hippie, trying to get... <laughs> get in on a good thing, you know? No, actually, in the ancient imagination of Israel, the incense was symbolic of the prayers of the people. And as the incense rose up, you know, the temple was like a little microcosm of, of the dwelling place of God. And everything that happened at the temple was symbolic of something that was happening at the very center of cosmic reality. And what was happening in this moment as the incense was going up is they, they envisioned it was symbolic of the prayers of God's people, the very cries of their heart arising to God. And get this, the priest would go into that holy place with uh, the breastplate on, which had 12 precious stones, which were symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was symbolic that he was carrying the nation. He would represent the nation before God and he would lift up their heart's cry to God. And what, what kind of things would, 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 would people be praying for? Well, stuff you pray for, uh, you know, grandma is sick and we're worried. I, I long, you know, to, to have a child and, and I'm, I'm not having one. I, I you know, the, 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 the crops need rain, you know, they would, they would be praying. One thing everybody would pray for, they would pray that finally God would act again in the world and make everything new. That God's king would come, that God would work again, that God would bring the consolation, the comfort, 
back to Israel and he would free them from their oppressors and he would, he would make all things new and the king would be there. And they prayed for this, they longed for this. And so they, they would, the, 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 the incense would arise symbolizing all of these prayers. And when this happened at the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice, all of the people would gather around outside. And look what it says, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And um, so, so are you getting the picture? You know, all the crowds of people are praying on the outside of the temple as he's offering up uh, the prayers of the people, uh, the, the incense on the inside. And no doubt, Zechariah was praying in that moment, something that he had been praying for decades. God, my wife Elizabeth is barren. Would you just please give us a child? And it's then that it happens. It's then that there an angel appeared to him, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And he looks up and he's just terrified because there's this angel of light before him. And the angel speaks and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. You know, this is the first word that every angel learns in angel training school because the first thing that, it, that people do when they see an angel is they're terrified. So they're like, no, don't worry, don't look that terrifying, but they're just humans. They're gonna be afraid. So just say, do not be afraid. And then he says, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Some of you came to church this morning maybe to hear this phrase. Even after Years after decades, your prayer has been heard. God sees, God hears, God knows. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Of course, you know, every parent in the house knows that when that child comes out into the world, it's like there's, there's a string that's attached from your child to your own heart. And their well-being and how they're doing is completely connected to how you're doing and your well-being, isn't it? And the angel says, there's gonna be joy at the birth of this child because your child is gonna do well. In fact, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink strong wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when they heard that, all of a sudden, he knew what this meant. This child would be the forerunner of the great king. In other words, the longing, the cry that the barrenness of his wife would be remedied is gonna be paralleled by the longing and the cry of barren Israel that finally Messiah would come and bring life into their world that seemed to be characterized by darkness and death. Your son will prepare the way for the king to come 
And he will do that by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, uh, and the disobedient of, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, Zechariah gets this news and notice his response. This promise, this good news, what is it met with? Is it met with joy and gratitude? No, not on this day. On this day, Zechariah, the promise is met with unbelief. Notice what he says. He says, whoa, 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 no way. How shall I know this? Like, this can't happen. I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And I love how the angel responds. He's like, look, I'm Gabriel. I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you this message and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And you think, that's kind of harsh, you know? Like, I mean, how would you respond? I mean, it's been decades He's prayed this prayer before. And his wife and he, they're old and the barrenness persists. And he's like, this, this can't be, you know, and it's just too hard for him to believe. And we're like, can't the angel give him a little break? Give him a little chance to kind of like, you know, think about this a little bit, maybe come around before smiting him mute. But listen, Zechariah should have known better. See, Zechariah was a priest and he was well-schooled in the stories of Israel. And he was well-schooled in the fact that when Israel's great mothers, when the great matriarchs of Israel were instruments and agents of the great promise of God, almost always, who was the agent and instrument God would choose to bring forth his promise into the world? It was a barren mother. First, it was Baron Sarah who gave birth to Isaac, and then Baron Rebecca who gave birth to Jacob, and then Baron Rachel who gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, and then uh, uh, Baron Manoah's wife who gave birth to Samson, and then Baron Hannah who gave birth to Samuel. Interestingly, Samuel, like John the Baptist, would be the one who would prepare the way, as it were, and be the kingmaker. Uh, John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the greater son of David. Jesus. Listen, the marvel of biblical faith is that the, the arena of God's life-giving, covenant-fulfilling action is barrenness and human inability. Isn't that interesting? And let's just note that this promise of God this plan of God is now gonna move forward in the face not only of the barrenness of Elizabeth, but also in the face of the unbelief of Zechariah. It turns out, and this is good news, that not everything depends upon human ability or even upon human faith. God is God, and God will continue to fulfill God's plan according to God's purposes in God's world with or without humans who will trust and believe in him. God will do what God will do in God's world. And that's good news. 
Now look how the story wraps up. It says, the people were waiting for Zechariah. They waited outside of the temple. And they're always concerned because when you walked into the temple, you were walking into the presence of the living God and it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And if some priest took too long to come out of the temple, you started to get suspicious. Did he do something wrong? Did he say something wrong? Did he make the wrong move? And so they were waiting outside, wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And so he starts making signs to them about what's happening. And then, um, and, and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went to his home and then he gets home and he, and he, you know, through his rough sign language or maybe writing in the dirt or whatever, he shares the good news with Elizabeth. I mean, think about this. Elizabeth just hit the jackpot, you know? She's like, she's like I'm gonna have a baby finally and my husband is gonna be silent for nine months. You know, I will never have to say to you, will you just shut up and listen for a second? No, listening is all he can do. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. It's interesting, matching the silence of Zechariah is the solitude of Elizabeth. She goes into withdrawal. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. You know, I think, um, of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth are historical figures. Zechariah, indeed, in a moment of history, saw an angel in the temple. Zechariah and Elizabeth were the mother and father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, to be sure, are historical figures. And yet, I think they open the story of the gospel because there's also something symbolic about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I think Elizabeth is symbolic in some ways of the state of the nation Israel, barren and longing for new life. The state of our world with all of our violence, all of our pain, longing for new life, all captured in the experience of this couple. And the story ends. And what I want to do now is I want to just stand back and I want to make three observations about this story, three things that I think we can learn from this story. And the first one is this. I think this story in some ways tells us where Christmas begins. You know, it's interesting that the, the gospel writers begin the story of Jesus in different places. John goes all the way back to cosmic history. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, if you want to understand the story of Jesus, you need to begin with uh, in the beginning of all things. And then Mark begins actually with the emergence of John the Baptist, that fiery prophet coming on the scene, preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, showing the great lineage of Jesus. He is indeed the true Messiah. It's interesting, Luke doesn't begin with cosmic history or with the lineage of Jesus or even with John the Baptist. Instead, Luke begins, Luke begins with an elderly couple 
living with unresolved pain, unable to produce that which they long for most. Because I think for many of us, this is where our own engagement with the story of Jesus begins. It begins with our own story of brokenness, when we reckon with our own inability to do for ourselves and to deliver for ourselves what we long for most, it begins here. Or just put it like this, this is where God meets you. I love this phrase, your prayer has been heard. They had prayed for decades. It felt like their prayers were hitting the ceiling and coming back down. I know so many of us feel like that. Prayer, it, it, it has felt dry. It's felt empty for a very long time. It's felt, like, it's felt like you're shooting arrows in the dark. Where they land, you know not where. And yet all the while, the Lord had heard. Listen, God's heart is like a magnet to human pain. And this whole movement that happens in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah happens because God has heard the cry of humans that we are broken and in need of salvation. We have broken the world with our own stupidity, our own sinfulness, and we have been broken by the world because of the stupidity and the, the sin of others around us. And God hears and God sees. And in this movement, God has acted because God is the God who hears and responds to pain. I was reading this week an interview with the president of the Seattle School, Dr. J. Derek McNeil. And in this interview, he said something that so resonated with this story. He said this, he said, God is aware of the wounds of our body, the hurts to our soul, the aspects of our spirits that are downtrodden. God is not simply elevated and distant, but close. And probably we feel the hunger for closeness most when we are in pain. And there God is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in the story, I think number one, we see where Christmas, or at least the story of Jesus, can begin. But I think in the story, we see something also about the spiritual disciplines of Advent. I find this so interesting that the two things that happen in the story, like the two postures that first Zechariah and then Elizabeth are put in, are two of the great disciplines of the Christian faith, silence and solitude. You know, Alicia and I were talking last night. She's like, wow, that would be amazing. Like, Josh, if you were forced into silence for nine months and I could withdraw into solitude, <laughs> you know, she's an introvert. And, um, but what kind of things could emerge in that environment? You know, and, and he's stricken mute. And, and maybe, maybe the muteness can be seen as an act of judgment, but I wonder if instead we should see this is an act of grace. That sometimes, maybe the most gracious and generous and kind thing God could ever do to you is shut down your mind and your, your mouth for just a second so that you could hear a voice that is stronger than the incessant voice of self-condemnation in your head, the incessant complaints and what's wrong with others out there that are spewing from your mouth. 
may not be seen as a sign of judgment, but a gift. You know, Ruth Haley Barton put it like this. She said, we are starved for quiet to hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. It is in the quiet that we can finally maybe encounter God and maybe, maybe, though religious he was, and though a priest and a well-respected one Zechariah was, though walking blameless in all the commandments he did, Maybe if you scratch below the surface, there was some cynicism and unbelief that was really growing. And that's so many of our stories. There's a veneer of religiosity, maybe of obedience, but below the surface, there is obedience, there is, there is disbelief and cynicism growing. And maybe the, the space you need to actually begin to cultivate a deeper inner spiritual life, to have that candle of hope relit is silence and solitude. I love this. I was reading, I came across this this week in a book I was reading. St. Bonaventure said this. He said, the mind unlearned in reverence is in danger of becoming so captivated by spectacle of beings as to be altogether forgetful of being itself. The mind unlearned in reverence which I just thought, could a phrase better capture the state of our world than this right here? We are surrounded by minds that are unlearned in, 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 in reverence, that know little of quiet contemplation and solitude before the presence of the transcendent, infinite, eternal, all-knowing God. And it is so seldom that we pause and we reflect and we consider ourselves in light of God's beauty and greatness and we consider his promise and his faithfulness. Instead, we are surrounded by frivolity and we consume so much frivolity in TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and Netflix and all of this stuff. It's just consumption that basically feeds our own nihilistic tendencies, our own... um, cynicism, we are captivated by the spectacle of being and we become forgetful of being itself, namely God. And it's in quietness and solitude that we can experience maybe transformation. Solitude, said Henry Nouwen, is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. You know, it may be that the word you need to hear today is this Advent creates space to be alone with God. Create space to turn off fast from your devices, fast from screens for 24 hours, I dare you. Once a week, I dare you. (laughs) And withdraw and be with God. And you might find your unbelief being dealt with. And so number one, I think this story tells us something about where Christmas can begin. Secondly, we learn something here about the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of Advent. But thirdly and finally, this is a story about God's power to overcome barrenness. 
Isn't it interesting that the very venue of God's creative, life-giving, promise-fulfilling work, the very venue that God chooses to work is the venue of human impotence, of human inability. They couldn't bring this child about, and this is where God chooses to begin his work. I read an essay this week in uh, Christianity Today by uh, that brilliant uh, preacher and theologian, Fleming Rutledge, and the title, I loved it, was this, Advent Begins Where Human Potential Ends. Listen, you will never work your way through Advent to the true meaning of Christmas until you reckon with the reality that we human creatures have no capacity within ourselves to finally and completely bring about the solution to the world's greatest problems. We cannot do it. The journey of Advent to Christmas is all about the surprise, grace, and the invasion of God from outside of human capacities. Again, I was reading another little piece from a, a, a Japanese artist whose name is Makoto Fujimura, but he put it like this. He said, we should not journey toward a world in which solutions to the problems are sought, but a world that acknowledges the possibility of the existence of grace beyond even the greatest of traumas, the ground zero realities of our lives. Listen, Advent and Christmas is about the possibility that the creator of all things has broken into the world, the possibility of grace in the midst of this darkness to bring newness and new life and forgiveness and healing into this world. And John, ultimately, the child of Zachariah and Elizabeth is gonna be the one who is pointing to that promise being fulfilled in Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who stakes away the sins of the world. This is a story about God and his power over barrenness. A story that will move all the way from this moment at the very beginning of the gospel and go all the way toward the end of the gospel to a barren, lifeless tomb with a corpse where the body of Jesus lay, that body that endured the rigors of Friday, entering into the pain and the suffering of our own humanity, bearing in his own body our sin and our darkness so that like Elizabeth, our reproach might be removed. He goes all the way from Friday into the dark night of Saturday. But early on Sunday morning, God acted in this world and God raised Jesus from the dead because the power of God is stronger than barrenness. This is the God who overturns death and who makes all things resurrection new. But let me just end by saying this. I don't wanna cheat our way through Advent. What I mean is the church has invited us into the wisdom of Advent, a wisdom of a season where we notice 
the longing and the ache in our own heart and life for things to be different than they are. We are not invited to too quickly move to Sunday, but to actually spend time grappling with the realities of Saturday, a long, dark night. You know, even after the birth of John, the fulfillment of this promise, Elizabeth and Zachariah will know deep pain again because John will be in prison just a couple years after his ministry begins. Then he'll die a grisly death. He'll be beheaded. And that death will just foreshadow the kind of reality that all those who walk in the way of Jesus will endure. We all endure a world of suffering and darkness before we get to Resurrection Sunday. And yet in the midst, we can light a candle of hope to coexist and to begin to drive out the fears and the darkness, even as we bear these heavy burdens, even as we are gripped sometimes with a pain that feels like it can't allow us to escape to enter into this joy, we can light these candles knowing that the light of God has entered into this world. And this light has come and the darkness will not and it cannot overcome the light. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again this Advent, and we just ask, God, that wherever we may find ourselves, that the story of Jesus might intersect with us there, that the possibility of grace and newness and hope would become powerful realities that would warm our hearts and melt our cynicism and unbelief. God, this Advent, would you rekindle our own hope and our own faith that you are the God of promise who makes and keeps promises, who's been faithful to your creation and to our lives. And you are the God who can overturn barrenness and darkness in our own hearts and in this world. Fill us that, with that hope afresh today, we pray. Amen.